Nick Dreger, welcome back to Labor Wave Radio. Thanks, Alex. So William Z. Foster has been a burning topic of interest among many in the North American union world, uh, namely, I would say, because of his reemergence as a popular intellectual from the victory of the American, or the, sorry, the Amazon Labor Union, the ALU. Some of their proponents admitted to heavily learning from William Z. Foster. So I wanted to bring you on the show as something of a you know, resident Foster expert to just talk about his ideas and what he really contributed to the labor world and maybe take a little bit of a critical lens on Foster. Yeah, sure. I, I don't know if I'm a Foster expert, but I'm definitely someone who's been reading a lot about uh, Foster over the last couple of months. So as part of kind of a broader IWW research project I've embarked on. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about him. Well, to kind of get started, would you mind just providing like a quick snapshot of like Foster's biography as a trade union uh, practitioner? I mean, he he was all over the map in North America. He did a lot of things. But maybe, like we don't have to go into all the details, but maybe you could just provide like a quick overview. Yeah, like like a lot of IWW guys or, or people who did a stint in the IWW even, he's a working class guy. So a lot of the like beyond the key points in his early life, there, there's not a lot of documentation. So he grew up very poor in Philadelphia um, and then and then made his way across the, the U.S. And then he kind of started entering the written record with the Spokane's free speech uh, fight in the IWW in 1909. Uh, he actually got involved in the free speech fight before he'd signed up, somehow kind of got drawn into it. Uh, and then after that, uh, after that, he signed his uh, union card in, in jail. Uh, within a couple of years, he was being, uh, I think, used as an organizer, and he was sent to uh, to an international socialist conference where he fell in with the uh, French CGT, which had had a basically sort of slate politics syndicalists take over, and was kind of an openly revolutionary union uh, union central in, in France, and also the main union central uh, in France, which is an interesting development on its own. And then so what you see happen from there is that he starts to have a, a different take than the IWW's kind of uh, attitude towards the mainstream labor movement that was maybe a bit standoffish, to put it lightly. Mm -hmm. uh, and he felt that the IWW should be more of a force uh, for militancy and industrial unionism within the AFL. So he came back and made his case uh, at a subsequent convention, I think in 1912. I don't have my precedent in front of me, but I think it was around 1912. And then he got uh, decisively beaten. Uh, nobody was interested in that. Everybody was coming hot off the tail of Lawrence, uh, the Lawrence strike, and we're actually feeling quite confident in the approach that the IWW was taking. Uh, so he, uh, so he decided to quit the IWW. And it's worth considering that right around that time, often people will point out that the IWW, in the words of uh, a lot of historians, failed to consolidate at Lawrence. Uh, and so the IWW actually took a real dip in membership in 1912-1913, but some of the projects that started as he was leaving, uh, namely the beginnings of the Agricultural Workers Organization, consolidating their uh, organizing and lumber workers, also uh, Local 8, were all uh, uh, projects that the IWW actually laid down the foundations of shortly after he left. So then he began a project where, so there was a Syndicalist League of North America that actually started before he quit the IWW, and he had a parallel Syndicalist League 
that was supposed to bore from within the IWW to get them to bore from within the AFL. Um, so, you know, like often this militant minority stuff has a Rube Goldberg machine effect of politics becoming really complicated as you try to play three-dimensional trust, getting everybody to do what you want to do instead of what they want to do. So anyway, he argued for the case and then basically jumped into the syndicalist league of North America. And, and they started forming a parallel organization arguing for syndicalist politics inside the AFL, outside the IWW. It, at that point, there was actually uh, something that I'd read recently where Nelson, British Columbia had a very strong IWW local made up of a few miners and mostly uh, timber workers. And they actually went over wholesale to the IWW. That was the only case I found, or to the Syndicalist League. That was the only case I found where, where he managed to poach a whole local that was relatively strong, was a few hundred members. So that that limped along for a couple of years, uh, and then it cratered. And so around that period was World War I, and then everything was kind of a giant mess. And he emerged from that a pretty ardent supporter of the idea of a communist party in the USA, like a lot of radicals who weren't necessarily Marxists. He saw this as a very encouraging development. As some people have said, we're all talking about it and they're doing it. So let's go figure out what they're doing. So he got in. It was interesting because I, I read something the other day about a historian who kind of commented that at no point in any of his career did he actually seem like a particularly convinced Marxist. Uh, but he was a convinced Communist Party guy and convinced Bolshevik. So he gets in there and he quickly finds his militant minority concept. And, and his affinity for that idea is it fits very well with Lenin's politics and, and with the, the kind of Leninism of the Bolshevik party. So then he goes to, to, goes to the Soviet Union on a tour, becomes a convinced uh, Bolshevik and signs uh, a card and becomes a member of the, uh, the Communist Party USA. Sometime shortly after that, he starts moving up again in AFL circles um, as a closeted secret uh, member of the Communist Party. And he begins to lead uh, some major strikes uh, for them, particularly in the steelworkers. And that's where he kind of gets his credibility as a, as a major mover and shaker and as a big name capital O organizer. Uh, that strike loses, but hey, he's a big name capital O organizer now. And he's in the Communist Party. And so he uh, begins to keep pushing forward and keeps pressing forward. He still has a lot of these AFL connections. But then in the early mid-20s, the Communist Party uh, starts to kind of get some other ideas and they develop the trade union education league. So this fella uh, decides that he's going to be the trade union education league uh, guy and, and basically their entry into the unions is this educational kind of foundation and all of that. And they start developing training programs for union, uh, you know, union members, organizers, staff, uh, officials, all of that developing this kind of like this curriculum, right? That goes on for a few years. And then the uh, the Communist Party internationally and in the USA uh, takes what the Trots uh, denounced as kind of an ultra-left turn. Uh, and they begin to set up uh, independent red unions. Now, what's interesting in that period is around the mid-late 20s is when a lot of people, about 2000, according to some historians, moved over from the IWW into the Communist Party. And then they adopt an independent red union program. And I've seen it referred to as uh, indigenous American uh, natural industrial unionists and stuff like that. What they're talking about is IWWs and IWW politics. And what they did was they kind of refounded the IWW um, on kind of on kind of Stalinist kind of terms. 
so it had a lot of the rhetoric of the kind of ultra left turn at the time so social fascism and, and kind of uh, a very aggressive attitude towards more moderates which probably well we have some indication that foster was actually deeply uncomfortable with but he described it in Saul Alinsky's biography as a, a as him being a good communist and as a good communist you do what the party says so he goes along with it and so the, uh, the trade union unity league is super interesting in that it sits at about 35,000 members uh, for most of its existence which is you know, not that far off of where the IWW sat around for a lot of its existence. And so so they occupied a similar kind of ecological niche on the political spectrum, even if some of their political commitments were very different, uh, particularly the relationship to one political party, the Communist Party. And so they, they developed through the late 20s and into the early 30s. And then in the in, in 30, 33, they just took off and they started growing. And within eight months, uh, they tripled in size to over 125,000 members. And then the word came down from Moscow that we're all uh, interests again, we're all doing bore from within. And they uh, effectively dissolved themselves into the AFL uh, where they could. They went to CIO aligned AFL locals. And Foster, I think, was more back in his element, right? This was more the kind of trade unionism, the kind of trade union politics he believed in and agreed in, agreed with. So, so then when that happened, uh, he, uh, he went and was the leader, I believe he was the leader of the Communist Party at a couple of points in these junctures, but the, these unions went in and then the CIO split from the AFL. And so then they're back out and he was a major force within the, uh, the, the, the left unions in the CIO, I believe. Um, and they grew to like 1,200,000 members, the left-led CIO unions with half of them United Electrical Workers. Um, so at that point, you can see these independent radical unions really taking off. Um, and then I think a lot of people kind of know the story from there where World War II hits. Uh, there's a lot of pressure for no strike clauses. Some of them sign it, some of them don't. And then after World War II, there's a major anti-communist backlash slash red scare. And a lot of people attribute that with kind of the decisive smashing of these red unions. I think I've written other stuff for organizing work about how I think it's a bit more complicated than that. But but the short of it is he presided over the rise and fall of the mm -hmm. Communist Party as its leader with a, with a couple other people interspersed in there. But but he was kind of one of the single most important leaders. So that's that's generally the trajectory of Foster's trade union politics and and, and what happened around him. Yeah, I think that's really helpful little biography you just provided there. And what I'd like to do is kind of return back to that convention in the IWW, either 1911 or 1912, not sure which year it was, where Foster really took a strong position on a few different key debates that would basically animate his politics for the rest of, or at least his analysis of unionism for the rest of his life. And that was basically the concept of boring from within. Um, becoming like a militant minority of the AFL. So can you kind of like walk us through like what was Foster's main intervention in this IWW convention? And then what was kind of the response from many of the IWW to his position? Yeah, it's interesting because like in a lot of ways, I think for Foster, and I think Foster is more consistent on this count, boring from within and the militant minority are concepts that are, they're tied, like very importantly tied. But at that convention, militant minority concepts were very popular. Boring from within was not. So for instance, you have Elizabeth Gurley Flynn standing up and arguing things like that we need to get rid of the general executive board 
uh, because of its bad centralizing influence and how that's a, a tool of control of the majority and what you want is the militant minority leading. And so you need the militant minority to lead through a lack of centralization and all that. And you'll see there's a lot of decentralization rhetoric too in his pamphlet on syndicalism that was written shortly before he decided to leave the IWW. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting about that that whole thing is that that kind of came out of the West, uh, the IWW in the West to a certain degree and and lingered for a long time. It it, it built and was a a pretty serious factor in the EP split in 1924 that, that also did serious damage to the IWW. So Militant minority concepts, Foster's not unique or special. That th- Those were one of a few strains in the IWW, and it was a, a significant minority of IWW leadership that actually believed in some sense what Foster was laying down as far as the militant minority. Uh, but the boring from within and the way that combines with the militant minority is what's significant with him in these debates. And I think that that's really where he got smoked, because there was a lot of other people arguing militant minority concepts. There's an interesting, uh, I was reading an account about lumber workers uh, in, in around 1912. And one of the key things that they talk about uh, that, that sounds like it almost kind of prefigures Foster's ideas around list and chain organizing and his steelworker organizing is the, there's a reminder for members on everything that a member, an IWW member is supposed to do when they're, when they're in a camp. An IWW delegate is like organizing in the camp. And one is keep a list of the radicals in the camp. Like that's the most significant and important fact is the radicals, not, and that's very different than say uh, organic leadership ID and uh, Mac Levy or in the IWW, what we teach with leader ID and all of that, right? It's, no, it's the people who are politically aligned with you. You want all of those people lined up, right? So Foster kind of came out of that milieu. That was, that was the ocean he was swimming in. So this concept of the militant minority combined with boring from within, uh, it, it fits very well, Right. But it's not what the IWW actually wanted to do. It's not where it was actually going. So he he ultimately lost those votes decisively. And the IWW, in my opinion, made a decisive turn away from boring from within and also, in a sense, made uh, laid the foundations of, of a different way of seeing things in the militant minority. And that became the dominant view in the heyday of the IWW from like around 1914 to 1924, where it wasn't a, a radical minoritarian kind of like... where you're almost like a permanent kind of opposition where they actually take the views of the entire workflow quite seriously, where they actually talk about the dynamic between more conservative and more radical workers and how that's part of the discussion. And you can't just shunt them aside and lead with the vanguard, how you need to actually pull everybody in, how you need a a way to kind of consolidate and, and weld a real workplace unit, right? Which is a very different conception than what Foster moves forward with outside the IWW. Yeah, when I was reading some of Foster's works, which we said before we recorded, but I think it's just something fun to kind of remark on is that when you read Foster, you have to take a lot of what he says with a grain of salt, because he is like such a grandstanding, you know, like makes these sweeping arguments about things without like much backing. Uh, So you have to be careful about taking his historical account as like facts. But nevertheless, when I was reading him describe the notion of a militant minority, uh, what he basically said, and it doesn't seem like he really ever modified this position much, was that no matter what union you're talking about, no matter what time period you're talking about, there's only ever a minority of active members ever in any union. And they could be actively conservative members and they can capture the leadership that way, or they can be the active radicals and capture the leadership that way. And like outside of that, everybody else. I think his terminology was close to this is basically just stupid. 
like an unthinking, stupid mass of people that are never, they're not really worth your time in trying to engage. Is that how you interpret his depiction of a militant minority? Yeah, and I, 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 I agree. And I think you can see it in the way he came into the IWW and also the current of the IWW that who was in from 1909 to 1913 or so. The free speech fight stuff is very based around that, right? You're not trying to win over your coworkers. You're trying to win over random people on the street. So what you're doing is you're putting yourself in a bigger pool of people so that you attract the percentage of people in that pool who are going to come and listen to your ideas rather than systematically working through a bounded constituency where you don't get to pick who you're talking to and winning everybody over to a basic minimum program and building from there, right? So what you're doing is you're, you're staking your flag and hoping everybody comes to you. And, and that, that sort of, um, that, that was a serious debate in the IWW that was partly settled in 1912, was that sort of street speaking, uh, like soapboxing, and then also free speech fight oriented kind of organizing and you can see Foster carrying that forward in his heavy, heavy emphasis on progressive alliances in the community. You're making up for your lack of a basis on the job by getting other progressives outside of the job on board. And that doesn't mean that any community organizing or bringing the community on is always like that, but it sure does let you do that, right? Uh, you can make up for your lack of support, say, on a, like, 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 say, some IWW line groups that do wage theft, they'll, they'll bring in outside lefties to stand outside a store or whatever to do wage theft stuff. And I've, I've done it, mm -hmm. um, you know, but what you're doing is you're, you're leveraging off of the community when you don't have the base in the shop, right? So in a lot of ways, that sort of thinking and that kind of approach is, is very similar to the free speech fight. And he kind of comes out of that. And you can also see in that um, Brissenden's really good on this talking about the like, um, the, the debates on the floor. So you've got things like them talking about getting rid of the GEB or uh, moving from a, what is it, to basically a senatorial kind of uh, seat count at convention, which means that each branch, regardless of size, votes on an equal footing. So like a branch like Local 8 with like 5,000 longshoremen votes the same as a propaganda local in like, you know, Eugene, Oregon with seven people. And they'll make the argument, I think this might have been Elizabeth Gurley Flynn even that made this argument that. Only mediocre ideas come from the masses. The truly great ideas come from the militant minority, right? So you, you, you get these really weird kind of backwards kind of like, like assessments of like what a mass organization should be and what it should do. Uh, but when you graft it onto a mass organization, you actually get a pretty potent mix where it's not like, like there's still a mass organization. It's been built somehow pr prior. And now you've got this kind of militant sort of vanguardist elitism which can use that to leverage it regardless. And you know what? On a certain level, you're kind of turning those workers into the stupid people you're denouncing them for being, right? Because what you're doing is you're playing them and they are going to tune out after a point. They are going to get cynical and disenfranchised. They are going to basically walk away, which is very different than the other half of the IWW that around this time uh, with the founding of the Agricultural Workers Organization, for example, in the Midwest in Kansas City, a year after this convention, they banned street speaking in the organization. They straight up banned it and said, no, we organize on the job. Hmm. No more soapboxing, no more free speech fights. We're not going to bail you out if you're hot dogging on the street and saying mean things to the cops and they come and knock you on the head. No, that's interesting. We'll back you up if you get into shit fighting the bosses on the job. Right. But like, but like we're not we're not getting into that stuff anymore. So it's a it's a it's a really interesting split in the IWW. And it really represents the IWW, it's worth considering, took off for like a decade after that and had its greatest years. Now, granted, 
maybe Foster got the last laugh. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> being, being, you know, a major figure in the CIO with the Red Unions there in 1.2 million, the IWW's maybe 100, 120,000, but uh, at yeah. its absolute peak. But uh, he probably didn't have many regrets <laughs> about the path that he chose. I think that guy fell up his whole life. I think he did fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, so it is interesting, though, what you're saying about the militant minority, because at the same time, Foster did clearly believe not that the masses need to be engaged, but that you need mass organization. And at this time in the IWW, he didn't look at the IWW as being a sufficient mass organization to like really change the world. He looked at the AFL back then, the American Federation of Labor, and saw them as like, look, this is a mass organization. And therefore, the strategy for the IWW, if I recall properly, his argument was essentially just shut this thing down, turn it into a propaganda league, infiltrate the AFL. And, you know, that's what he calls bore from within the existing conservative business unions and radicalize them. Uh, And I think it's really important that a lot of this notion hinged on not just the militant minority, but also that Foster believed all forms of trade unionism were inherently revolutionary. So even the AFL had this possibility of being turned into a revolutionary vehicle And so it didn't matter that it was like a conservative union today. So I just wanted to throw that in there too, about like this very specific view of boring from within and what he was trying to get the IWW at the time to do. I mean, it's super interesting to argue that all unions, no matter what, are inherently revolutionary. Like that's like bananas. Even back then, that's bananas. And the trade union movement looked very different than it does now. Yeah. But like that, that's nuts. But it's also the flip side. It's the exact opposite of the argument that all unions are inherently compromised, bounded and limitless, inherently reformist and mm-hmm. incapable of it. And that's why you need a party. And that's why. And, and, and what's interesting about that is it's it's not that different than Foster in a certain sense either, where you need the party because the unions because the unions are just, well, workers only ever to get trade union consciousness. Right. Lenin out of 1902, what is to be done? said, we need a conscious intervention of the revolutionary intellectuals, disaffected members of the intelligentsia. And let's be clear, these people aren't factory workers who are reading a lot. They're wealthy, affluent people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need intervention from those people because the workers can only ever achieve trade union consciousness. So there's an interesting, they mirror each other, but the thing that's in common is a general sense that the masses can't do it on their own. And the truth of the matter is, let's be clear too here, the average person has a lot of contempt for the average person. This isn't like, like, like this isn't an unpopular, unusual idea. Everybody thinks they're goddamn Nietzsche and that everybody around them is like some like lump uh, and, and they're all, they're all mediocre and all of that. So in, in a sense, like the IWW faction that was like putting its faith in ordinary working people's experiences and building an organization carefully and deliberately through that, they're actually the like, the outliers and the weirdos. Yeah. Uh, but I also think that maybe that's actually the thing that needs to be grappled with here is just because the masses don't think that they can do it doesn't mean that they can't do it. Maybe that's what ideology is, <laughs> is us all agreeing that the masses can't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, so there's a process there, right? And there's a general kind of trajectory. So you've got the AFL and you've got them kind of like, like moving in that direction and then you've got the IWW moving in their direction. And basically, Foster is trying to reconcile it in one direction. 
uh, and try and move things in the direction of the AFL, where the IWW is moving in the opposite direction. And I think that sometimes people will take the fact that the IWW lost that historical argument as a sign that the IWW was wrong. And I don't know, I don't know if I buy that, but I do buy that it's evidence that the IWW lost the argument. And you can see that everywhere on the left in society today. And that maybe the starting point needs to be going back to that, figuring out how do we have a uh, how do we have a revolutionary practice? How do we develop organizers? that doesn't treat workers like they're stupid, but also doesn't pretend that they just know how to, how to organize. Yeah. You know what I mean? That like, maybe this is a process and people are developing themselves and, 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 and this process is moving in the right direction when people become more confident, when they become more independent thinking, when they're more able to take things on themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that you and I have talked about one day in the future, really digging deep into the decline of the IWW and why. Because there's a lot of ripe debates about why the IWW declined. But I do, I do think it's interesting to kind of recap some of this argument that Foster lays down in this history, is that you basically got this camp that you know, Foster represents that say, revolutionary organization, you know, the IWW itself is just like a dual union, which was kind of like a pejorative way of describing what they were trying to build is like, there's, there's already the existing mainstream labor movement, and that's all that really matters. All these little small factions of like revolutionary unionists aren't going to change the world. The best that we can hope to do is organize a militant minority, bore from within the existing business unions, and reform them and hope for the best. And what I find interesting about that is that, honestly, it seems like the exact same argument <laughs> that you hear today, almost across the board. Like, I don't, it feels like we're rehearsing this exact same debate today, like amongst many on the so-called labor left. Foster's position then almost seems automatic today for many involved in organized labor. What do you think about that? There's a deep and abiding irony that you can buy a book that's bright orange with it written across the cover, no shortcuts, that has this exact sentiment. (laughs) And let's be honest here, this is a shortcut. There's an actual process of working class development, an actual process of working class experience with a lot of setbacks, and it's never easy. And it's never as straightforward as the formulas that that Foster laid out. As much as he may argue that history has vindicated him, the simple fact is that what we've got right now is a choice between a hypothetical socialism that's liberatory and free and self-expressive and a history of actual existing dystopia. And then on top of that, you look at the history of this. So with Foster, he's arguing, look, we have to do this. We have to do it now. We have to do it fast. We have to do it right. Uh, But doing it right, frankly, is is maybe a third consideration. And then in the 50s, you'll have people who were the descendants of Foster or descendants of splits of organizations that Foster was the head of. And they'll be arguing, look, if we don't do this, we're going to be annihilated by nuclear war. Uh, If we don't do this now, humanity's at an end. Uh, If we don't do this, you know, yada, 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 yada. And then in now, in this era, if we don't do it, it's ecological catastrophe. If we don't do it, it's that. And frankly, we didn't actually have barbarism. We have a pretty screwed up society with a lot of problems, but society did not just fall apart at the seams. And we actually didn't wipe ourselves out in a nuclear war yet. Uh, we'll have as many kicks sure. as humanity wants uh, from this point onwards, but so far, so good. And honestly, ecological catastrophe is a real concern and a real possibility, but it's not a foregone conclusion. And I think that sometimes we use the stakes of the situation 
to confuse ourselves about the odds of a given strategy's likelihood of success. Mm. And I think that that's like a common mistake that people who maybe are really into gambling uh, make. Yeah. But there's, there's, there's a difference between the stakes and the odds. And you would think that if you're taking the stakes that seriously, that you'd stop messing around with shortcuts and start thinking seriously about how we need to build a movement that's going to build the humanity we want out of the humanity we have, rather than just taking the few people who really, really agree with us and we really, really like, and somehow leveraging them into positions where they can marshal all the other stupid masses into the conclusions that we need. Well, so since Foster's ideas are largely the prevailing ones today amongst organized labor you know, practitioners, it seems to me like returning to some of the main lines of rebuttal and critique that members of the IWW waged against Foster actually could help us kind of clarify the other lines of the debate for today that probably still apply. One of them was that, you know, to Foster's notion that you need to bore from within the AFL, most people pointed out the AFL is not a union uh, and that it only represents a fraction of the population. So why bore from within 10% of the population when you got 90% of the workforce that still needs to be organized? So that was one big critique of Foster. There's a couple other points to that, though, too, about the AFL that are really important to keep in mind. One is joining the AFL wasn't even an option for most of the IWW. So their their option really was to just pack up and stop doing what they were doing. Uh, because the, the AFL was literally arguing, you guys shouldn't be in unions. Unions aren't for you. Unions are for native-born, skilled tradesmen, males. And a lot of the IWW wasn't that. So, so like right there, there's also a problem. And I do think that there's a parallel to that when you argue... AFL unions, or even just the labor board certification process, the simple fact is that like the vast, vast majority outside of some very recent certifications, which we'll see if they negotiate contracts, but the vast majority of union bargaining units are in 100 person plus workplaces. They're in large workplaces with large affluent employers that can afford a very sophisticated and complicated labor relations regime. And the idea that there is a union movement for people who don't work for major companies with major resources for labor relations and human resources kind of functions is honestly like every union will say, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. None of them have figured out how to make it work over the long haul yet. Uh, and frankly, none of them are putting much resources into making it work. They'll organize them, but that does that's not the same as a long-term consolidated presence as they'll tell the IWW all the time. So I think that with the AFL, there's some parallels then and now in the, in that. And it's also worth pointing out that the AFL's uh, like actual percentage of the workforce is actually lower now than a lot of the time that was in the IWW. Yeah, exactly. I think those parallels really do stick. And the other one that I think really sticks that the critique that the IWW folks made against Foster's arguments back then was that if you really want to change the union world, including the conservative business unions, the best way to do that is to create a better example, <laughs> to like organize better, to do it slow, to create an independent union that like actually does embrace. Uh, at the time, it was largely had to be open to like women and immigrants, black workers, which the AFL was not. Today, I think the parallel is what you're suggesting is that we have to have a union movement that can also address the needs of workers that don't work for these mega corporations necessarily, that don't easily fit into collective bargaining frameworks. And that to me seems like probably still the argument today that holds true. Like if you really want to change the AFL-CIO, the existing business unions, 
what better way to do that than actually create a real threat, uh, a real threat from outside of the existing union world? Yeah, I'm a big fan of independent unions in general. I think that they're really important. And I think you're right. There's like a competitive drive that kicks off when a union starts doing something slightly different than another union. And it does create a situation where they tend to compete with each other for militancy and and uh, engagement and generally taking more strident positions. I think that, that that's all pretty healthy and strategically smart for a union to do sometimes. I mean, also, though, as soon as you do that, that they're going to start courting you and try and bring you in, right? Um, right? Which is just part of the dynamic. And for what it's worth, too, I will say that, like, I don't know if I've ever bought the IWW critique that everything in the labor movement is labor fakers and, like, and that it's all terrible any more than I buy the TUUL argument that they are all, like, social fascists or whatever like that. Like, there's some ridiculous stuff that gets said by the far left, too, that I, I don't think actually they need to say or helps their case any. Like, ultimately, the proof is in the pudding. You do what you do and, you know, speak, let your results speak for themselves. And I think when the IWW does well and basically uh, sticks to its actual uh, beliefs and does organizing the way it should, uh, I think it can stand on its track record rather than denouncing the other unions for, like, political shortcomings and all of that, right? But I don't think Foster, like, I don't think Foster, for his part, I think he was happy to denounce people's labor fakers. Everybody else was a bureaucrat except for him and all of that, right? Like, I don't think any of that, like, motivated him at all. It is interesting what you're putting down because it does seem like even today, some of the most prominent victories in the union world, at least in the United States, have been independent unions. The Amazonians United. I know that some people will, like, scoff at that and say that that's small potatoes, but I find it particularly inspiring. Um, and kind of adjacent to the IWW, honestly, and how they organize, or at least in Chicago, it seems like. And then this major victory at Amazon, again, was an independent union, the ALU. Now, like you say, they're going to probably be courted by the mainstream union world. And that seems like it's obviously already happening. But these are pretty inspiring victories that came through independent forms of unionism. I think anything that's inspiring is going to be small potatoes. Uh, like right now, under the current, like you can't change the entire way the entire labor movement works. All of these entrenched practices, thousands of staff, lot, tens of thousands, millions of members, uh, tens of thousands of officers, like you're not going to change that overnight. Like even the most radical, like ardent insurrectionary trade unionist is going to have to come to terms with the fact that there's going to be small, isolated experiments before anyone catches on to a program that works. Mm. So, so yeah, like, I think the inspiring stuff is small. And I think, yeah, I think the independent unions, there's actually like, I remember Tom Wetzel, I think it was in like some kind of big fight on my wall, said something that was super interesting uh, about, and I kind of went and checked it. But the only time the labor movement in the USA in particular has ever grown is when the labor movement was split and there were competing federations. So like the Knights of Labor and the AFL, that was a huge period of growth. Uh, the IWW pushing up against the, the, the AFL, there was a moderate period of growth. And then the CIO, when they broke from the AFL, was when they really took off. So it's worth considering that like that maybe the only way for the labor movement to grow is independent unions, uh, people outside of the big labor centrals. That, that maybe, because there's a tendency, again, Foster thinks that like that all unions are revolutionary. And I think that like there's also a sense that all unions, all serious unions are in the House of Labor. And if you're not doing that, you're not really doing labor politics. And I actually think that those two things, like Foster saying and that, are actually closer to each other than it might seem at first glance. 
because what you're actually looking at is unions as a sort of arena for politics rather than political in themselves. And, and so I think that like what's going on is this kind of thinking that like that unions, that you need to win the leadership of the unions in order to change how unions are done. But like the truth of the matter is that the actual process of union reform is just a lot more complicated than that. It's a lot messier. I like what you just put out about when unions are split is when they actually grow. It reminds me at some point we're going to do an episode on the legacy of Stanley Aronowitz because I think he has some interesting things to say about union strategies for today. But one of his prominent uh, arguments is about minority unionism. And Aronowitz is pretty convinced that the exclusive representation rights enshrined in the National Labor Relations Act actually was like a terrible thing. uh, And that most unions today are very committed to exclusive representation rights. But he thinks that actually one of the best labor law reforms for today would be getting rid of that to enable minority unionism in one single workplace and make unions basically fight over workers with better programs and better strategies. So it's interesting to consider going back to the CGT, which really set like William Z. Foster's mind on fire, right? Like that was what got him going. The CGT has been the hegemonic dominant labor federation in France for about 115 years, I think, maybe longer, maybe 120. And France has a similar union density to the United States because basically the entire country is open is open shop, right? It's like right to work, uh, like like anything you'd find in the Deep South. And they have a tradition of the unions being able to mobilize non-union members in strikes that's very potent and very powerful. And not everybody who's a union member is a union supporter. Uh, or every, not everybody who's a union uh, supporter is a union member. And the truth of the matter is that a lot of people may have a somewhat jaded uh, view of their unions, but are very willing to support the strike when the strike makes sense. And the unions, for their part, are very used to mobilizing beyond their own membership, let alone their own membership with a lot of unions in North America, but beyond their own membership, but in that workplace. And honestly, if you put up French working conditions against American working conditions. You just got to flip through the American business press every once in a while to see how bad they think it is in France and how good the workers have it compared to the USA. Well, I think we should come to a conclusion here. And, you know, it's always hard to come up with like a good concluding question or subject to end on. But I was recently reading, by your suggestion, this uh, summary of William Z. Foster by James P. Cannon. And what I liked about that. It's kind of like a gossip column almost, but and and has some interesting things in addition. But James Buchanan seemed to be saying that a lot of Foster's success in the union world was really just individual attributes that he possessed, that he just happened to be a good hustler and bounder and like could persuade people to his position on things. And then he would take his own charisma and like particular characteristics and try to like generalize that into like a grand theory of organizing. And I just was curious to hear your thoughts about that. I mean, I'm always suspicious of the guy that complains that the other guy in an argument is too charismatic. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Because it's not because I made bad arguments. It's because he's too charming. He's more (laughs) likable than me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And okay, so fair enough, James. Uh, And and that's why Trotskyism has always been second fiddle to Stalinism is because Stalin was just too charming and got along with everybody too well. And just people weren't serious enough intellectuals for Trotsky. And clearly they were the problem, not Trotsky. 
So what I'm saying is maybe James Cannon is kind of projecting his sure. own problems and also his own mentors and differences. This is a common line out of Trotz. Mm-hmm. But I think I think there might be something sort of there, but also keep in mind that he didn't charm the IWW. He was kind of run out. Yeah. But he did charm the AFL. So maybe instead of, and again, this is something like that, that for a bunch of people who are the arch not liberals that Trotz should be, maybe you got to stop analyzing people's personal attributes so much and look at the environment and the social constellation, that ecosystem that they're operating in where those personal attributes thrive. And then when you're the person who's arguing a bore from within strategy like Cannon is, because he's also arguing a bore from within strategy, same as Foster in the end, but Foster was good at it and you weren't, then maybe those attributes were what like you were lacking, but also maybe those attributes weren't actually what you should have been looking at if that's what you wanted was success in that world, right? Like maybe it actually points to the limits and deficiencies of canon because canon, every article was basically like, yeah, this guy is like, is, is one of the many apes before the man that is the Socialist Workers Party. But if the Socialist Workers Party is the man that triumphed over all the apes, how come they languished after the 50s? Well, with that, thanks for the conversation. I think it was really fun. I'm curious people's reaction to this because I know there's a lot of real fans <laughs> of Foster. And I think, you know, I think we were pretty fair to Foster. Well, I think I think we here at Organizing Work are, are pretty uh, pretty predictable and that we like to say things that maybe go a bit against the <laughs> Yeah. Well, kudos to that. So thanks again, Nick Treger. Excellent conversation. And at some point, we should definitely talk about digging in deep on the decline of the IWW. Yeah, absolutely. Just remember all birds and bees. Go by to Cold and old